journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shalom, shalom, shavua tov, chodesh tov to everybody. We just celebrated going into the month of Elul on Thursday and Friday last week. We are now in the auspicious time where the king is in the field, meaning that Hashem is very, very close to us. It's a time for us to do our reckoning. It's a time for us to do our balance sheet to go see what we accomplished this year and what we also fell short on and to make reparation before the high holy days, which is Rosh Hashanah, coming up very soon at a synagogue near you. Um, I'm sure all the ladies are in Rosh Hashanah mode. There's no question about it. And you're starting to uh, make all your plans for the meals and the inviting but please, an, a, a shout out there to everybody. Keep the main thing. The main thing, Rosh Hashanah is about standing before the King of Kings. Blessed be He. It's about asking Hashem to give us another year where we, we can find joy, happiness, blessing, abundant health, wealth, and all good things. And it really isn't about that extra pudding that we are going to have on our table, but rather how clean we present ourselves to Hashem. So use this time um, as, as, as much as possible to go through uh, some introspection. Um, uh, and, and let's not become, as we are going to read now, like Pharaoh. He became so stuck in his ways, so evil in his doings, that eventually God led him along the path where he no longer even had a choice, but um, his heart was hardened, um, just simply because he was like that for... For, um, uh, for, for so long. So join me, please. We are going to be learning the, the, the Pasha of Aera. We're in chapter 9 of the book. We are going to enter into the fifth plague. Maybe we'll do two plagues today. We are, we are uh, learning about the ten plagues of Egypt. And as always, we will discuss um, the verses. We'll see what the verses have to say. We'll understand from the Midrash what the verses were going to do um, and and uh, what they accomplished. And then we are going to talk about the psycho-spiritual part of it um, insofar as what can we learn. And whatever we learn now is actually good stuff for us to think about and uh, project forward um, just in terms of us getting our act together before Rosh Hashanah. Any questions, any comments, 34519 is our SMS line. 061-895-1019 is our telegram number. I welcome any uh, conversations or anything uh, that uh, that that you you want to ask. Please feel free. Okay, right. Let's go into uh, chapter nine, verse one. We are on the fifth plague, um, and uh, let's go and see what it is that that happened there. So if you recall, again, the plagues are coming in waves of three. The first two have warnings, the third one not. Then the next two, plague four and five, have warnings, and the sixth one not. So we're in plague five, so this is a warning plague. We're just coming out of the fact that um, uh, Paro cries out, um, and tells uh, Moshe to get the Kruger National Park out of 
out of Egypt. By the way, if you miss any of these things, you can go back and listen to them on podcast on my show on the chayfm.com uh, website or app. Right, verse one by Yom Hashem al Moshe. Hashem says to Moshe, "This is verse, this is as I said, number five. So there's a warning. Boil Paro, go to Paro, love and speak to him, and say." Ko Amar Hashem Melukeha Evrim. So says the God, God of the of the Jews of the Hebrews. Shlachitami v'yavduni. If you're going to learn any one word, it's let my people go so they may serve me. Ki imayenatadishanech. If you refuse to let them go, the otcha machazik vam, and you still want to hold on to them. Guess what? Hineyad Hashem hoyav miknecha. God's hand will be against your livestock. Asher besade in the fields, basusim on the horses, bechamorim on the donkeys, bagmalim on the camels, babakar ubatzon against the the cattle and the sheep. Dever kaved meod, a very serious epidemic. Basically, basically we call this plague pestilence. So it's going to be some type of plague that is going to. Um, Come and kill all these animals: your donkeys, your 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 horses, your your camels, your cattle, and your sheep. Behifla Hashem bein miknei Yisrael bein miknei Mitzrayim. Here we're seeing a division again. We saw the division last uh, plague when the wild animals, the whole Kruger National Park, was absolutely everywhere except by the Jews. Same thing over here. There is going to be a division. Not a single one belonging to the children of Israel will die. Lo yamud, mikol livnei Yisrael davar. They they will not die at all. And you should know that this is going to happen tomorrow in the land. Okay. So the bottom line is is that God is going to. Um, Kill everything that is livestock in the fields, and um, he will make a miraculous distinction between the flocks of Egypt and those of the, the children of Israel. And really, it didn't it didn't matter how close or how near the Egyptian flocks were; they could pass pasture as far as Goshen, where the Jewish people lived. Um, some of them could be even in close proximity, but again. The epidemic, this this pestilence, um, started striking through the various flocks, and it became a very very obvious miracle that not one single animal of the Israelites um, got killed, and that's why um, it, it 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 showed the Egyptians that this is against you not against everybody, and you can't blame Mother Nature. Also, God is being pretty, um, what's the name? Pretty, uh, if I could use the word estreparous, you know, what happened with, with Paro? Paro said by the plagues of frog, he said, tomorrow, like get rid of it tomorrow. God says, now, I will also do this tomorrow. Okay? Um, you want to, to, to sort things out? Okay. Well, tomorrow. So what happened? God did exactly that tomorrow. You want to talk about tomorrow? Well, God's in charge of tomorrow. And guess what? 
all the livestock of Egypt die. Not one of the livestock of, um, of the Israelites died. So what you are seeing is that um, what really, really happened um, is that now increasingly the Egyptians are starting to see the separation of the Jews from their society. And of course there is a midah connected midah, there is a divine justice in it all, and after the break I'm going to discuss why it is that now pestilence was very, very specific to unravel the fabric of of Egypt. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. We're talking all about the plague of pestilence, right? So basically um, every animal that was outside um, landed up being killed by this this pestilence. The Torah is, and I didn't really find any um, clear thing as to what uh, this pestilence actually was, but it was just it was just a sickness that killed the wild animals, and it was very specific. And let's get more into the specifics so that we can answer better and understand better what happened. We are told in the Midrash that if a Jewish person had a sick animal that was already dying, it didn't die in this plague. It was then perfectly obvious that the the, the, the Jewish flocks were completely immune to the epidemic. If an Israelite had an interest in an Egyptian animal, it would not die. If an Israelite had a legal claim on an animal, it was also spared. So the plague indicated which animals actually belonged to the Jewish people. Now, you can ask yourself, as we have been asking ourselves in all the other plagues, what was it that they needed to rectify? What was divine justice trying to teach? Well, the first thing is, is that the Egyptians forced the Jews to tend their flocks in, their des- in the desert and the mountains. And the whole point of that was they wanted to send the Jewish men to the most distant pastures so they could keep them away from their wives, and that meant that the population would be controlled. So that was the first reason why now uh, their animals were being killed, because obviously they had benefit from the Jewish from the Jewish men looking after these animals but they were looking after them in, a, in, in terrible conditions, away from their families. Well, now you won't and you can't have any uh, advantage in keeping those animals because really these animals were only here um, simply because um, the Jews had looked after it. So that was the first reason. But the reason is not only on a practical, it also comes down to a... A spiritual level, a human level, and um, the other, the second reason was that, in truth, the Egyptians treated the Jews like animals. They made them do the work of animals. They made them pull their heavy plows, etc., etc. So, if you go and take a human being and you treat him like an animal and you make him do all sorts of terrible things, then 
that that's what happens. You lose your animals. And we're told that they, they, they use them instead of, of what animals used to do. If there was a donkey to carry, the Jew carried it. If there was a, a bull to plow, the Jew pulled the plow. Whatever, if, if, whatever it was that was needed that was done by animals, um, they would, they would make the Jews do it because that was punishment for them. So that is a, a, a deeper reason as to why God now effectively is wiping out the entire livestock of the Egyptians. They also, by the way, were punished because they um, expropriated the Jewish livestock illegally. If they wanted to have another 10 sheep, they would just walk into Goshen and just help themselves. Um, they had punished the Jews so much and, and worked them so hard that they didn't even have time or strength to care for the animals. They would take them away willy-nilly. Well, guess what happens now? What happens is that they, they, um, <clears throat> their, their livestock is now completely taken away. Now, please take note here that they actually, it, it spread throughout the entire nation. Uh, the livestock get completely messed up and Paro is sitting there in his little hole in his palace. And he is watching the entire material wealth of the Egyptian nation just getting wiped up. What did he do? By Yishlach Paroi, Paroi sent messengers. And he was told that they had discovered that not one single animal of the livestock of the children of Israel had died. What do you think Paroi did? Nevertheless, he remained stubborn. He didn't let the people go. And even though it was very, very, very obvious, okay, um, it didn't bother him. And why did he, Dafka, not think, well, maybe I really, really, really should stop doing that? Simply because he figured that if the Egyptian animals die, he could still expropriate Israelite animals, okay? Um, and the very fact that the, the Jewish livestock survived was the reason that he believed that he could continue practicing his incredible stubbornness. And again, you know, like I think to myself, like how can a man be so, like how come he didn't see the writing on the wall? But it's not really far-fetched. It's really not so fantastic, you know, like a fantasy to think that you can't. Because whenever we look at life and we see things, you know, we, we, we suffer a lot from cognitive dissonance. We will excuse and find excuses for anything and everything in the book. It's human nature. If you listen to your Yetzirah, if you listen to the negative side, you probably could go around and okay anything. And truthfully, ladies and gentlemen, just look at the world today. What was unacceptable 10 years ago, 20, 30, 50, 100, has become so acceptable today. And truthfully, truthfully, we have become 
so blinded by what is moral, what is integrous, what is right, and what is wrong, that today even the most wrong, we try to find an excuse how to say that it's right. And that's the problem, is how far do you push that moral band? And this is, this is a human sickness. It's called cognitive dissonance. That you can look at something and you can know that it's wrong. It's wrong what is happening, but then you'll find excuses, okay, to say, no, this is, this is, this is, this, no, 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 I'm not going to believe this. Really, we can, we can look at it this way and we can shave it this way and we can argue this way. And truthfully, in life, if you are relying on your own moral judgment, if you are relying on what's right and wrong, just simply by your subjective decisions, then anything can be right and anything can be wrong. And you can argue from here to kingdom come, but you will get nowhere because what might be right for me could be wrong for you. If I can go and justify and I shouldn't even use the word I. There was a place where not long ago in history, the Nazis justified the Jews to be the vermin and pestilence of society. And it was so right that six million Jews plus another six million Gentiles were killed in the name of the betterment of society, of ridding the society of that which was believed at that time to be negative for society. And it wasn't that Hitler went and, you know, um, managed to get a couple of people on his side. The entire world bought into it. The entire Europe bought into it. Were there pockets of people, Jews and non-Jews alike, who understood that morality isn't by what we think is right and wrong, but the fact that we have to um, acquiesce to a much higher authority, which we call God, which we call the Bible, which we call the Torah, that gives us absolute morality, and that we can find within ourselves the love, the compassion, the strength, the courage to fight against it, there were those handfuls and, 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 and they were successful in saving people. But for the large majority, they believed, hook, line and sinker, everything that Hitler had said. And understand, Hitler didn't wake up in the morning in 1933 and say, okay, I'm now taking every single Jew to the extermination camp and I'm going to expel, uh, exterminate him. He did it slowly and he wore down and in wearing down, he wore down the moral fabric of society at large until society had lost the plot and they couldn't tell the difference anymore between right and wrong. In fact, they thought what they were doing was very right. They were fired up. They were going to go and bring in whatever error the Third Reich was supposed to bring in. And it took a lot of strength. It took a lot of courage. It took a lot of moral clarity for those who were on the other side to fight against it and to get it back to where it come. And today, sadly, sadly, and I'm sad to say it, I believe that society is back in the dregs of immorality where anything and everything just goes, where anything and everything is allowed to happen, 
where we are practicing so much tolerance again that it's become intolerable, that people can do what they want, when they want, how they want, to whom they want, without not much more um, repercussion than a, a little, little kid. So really, it's, 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 it's food for thought, and it is, it is something that one needs to, to, to really, really think about. And since we are in the month of Elul, perhaps this is something that you can meditate on and think about. Have you lost your moral compass? I can ask another question. Do you have a moral compass? Do you, do you actually, when you are making your decisions, do you ponder what I'm doing? Is it right? And when you ask yourself the question, is it right? Are you asking it? Not in that you should justify it, but rather that it is justified in the eyes of God because there's no question that you will do things right in your eyes. Aren't we all like that? Aren't we all blinded? Isn't that our blind spot? Tell me what you think. Do you think the world has digressed into moral depravity that a lot that, that we see today is just simply because of cognitive dissonance that we've been swallowed up? Or do you think that I'm wrong? Love to know. Love to know what people think out there. 34519 is our SMS line. 061-895-1019 is our telegram number. But going back to Egypt now, right? The entire livestock of the Egyptian superpower is finito. Goodbye and good luck. And albeit that that was all destroyed, our friend Mr. Pharaoh suffered from severe cognitive dissonance and figured, well, if I need animals, I'll just go expropriate the Jewish ones. I don't have to worry that I've lost all my cattle and all my stuff because there was no boundary about robbery, about taking that which wasn't your own. Let's just take a step back now and let's look at the psycho-spiritual point of view and what the Kabbalah uh, teaches and then maybe we can just wrap it up back into this this conversation around um, morality and having a compass and asking yourself what I'm doing, is it right or is it wrong and who's answering that for you? If you're answering it yourself or you've got an external absolute guide. Right. The fifth plague, um, this, this one, this, this epidemic, this pestilence, okay, is the embodiment of compassion. But as we've spoken about before, um, when we, we are, we are, we are dissecting it, every single characteristic in life, okay, um, can be positive or can be negative. And in understanding now what I'm going to teach you, you'll come to understand why it embodies compassion. You can have a positive compassion. Okay? What is compassion? In fact, the Kabbalah teaches and states that compassion is more powerful and more enduring than love. Why? Because, you know, generally, when you love somebody, you usually overlook the flaws of, of your beloved one. Okay? 
I love you so much that even though I know you do X, Y, and Z, or you behave in such a way, or you have whatever have you, I'm going to overlook it, um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention. Obviously, if the flaws do emerge and they do become um, significant, your love can weaken, or it can be completely destroyed, totally. Compassion, on the other hand, is a much more extreme form of love in that it takes into consideration all the flaws of the individual, okay? But and it, 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 the, the, the reason why it's stronger than love is because it extends a helping heart and a helping hand regardless of the flaws of the individual. And this is a character trait, a midda, that we as humanity need to aspire to. We need to aspire to holy compassion. Meaning, what does that mean? It is, if I can put it in, in different words, the ability of a soul to experience pain, <coughs> excuse me, the pain and the needs of another fellow human being and then to do something about it. The Egyptians practiced compassion, but their compassion was a not a holy compassion, okay? It was a, like a, a sly compassion, a deceitful compassion. Why? Because what they did was that they saw the people's weaknesses. They saw the Jewish people's weaknesses, but instead of going and helping them, <coughs> Excuse me. Instead of going to help them, they exploited them for selfish purposes and for destructive goals. And so what really happened was that Egypt was filled with an epidemic long before the pestilence came. It was an epidemic of misplaced compassion. It inflicted damage on the people. It was silent. It was deadly, like an epidemic. But it cut it it, it 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 destroyed the people as opposed to helping the people. And so now what 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 comes along is the the the, 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 the pestilence of the wild beast, meaning what God was destroying was the wild beasts, the outdoor animals. And generally the outdoor animals are animals that are aggressive. Okay, they are, are, are representative of the animal within ourselves. And in order for us to transcend and become holy, compassionate people, we need to slay, we need to kill the animal part of ourselves that, that makes compassion very sly, very deceitful. And we go out and we, we, we hide behind, oh, we are helping the people, but in truth, Really what we're doing is we're inflicting a terrible damage that is silent and deadly. And that really, again, let's take it back to what I was talking about the Nazis. Okay? We weren't talking about, um, a, a very low resonating people that, that came out of the dungeons. We're talking about educated people, cultured people, great thinkers, clever people, but they use their compassion in sly and deceitful ways. 
They either silently or openly destroyed humanity because they were going to gain for themselves and for nobody else. This is what we need to work on every single day, is when we are showing, so to speak, our Rahmanas, our compassion on somebody, are we showing it because we just want to make the world a better place? Or are we showing it because tomorrow my name is going to be on neon lights and everybody's going to think I'm the best thing on toast? Ask yourself that question. Let me know. If you want to make a comment, 34519-061-895-1019. And this is, of course, High FM 101.9. High FM 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, let's carry on and let's look now into the plague of oils. These guys not learn. Remember now we're on plague number six, so this comes without a warning. Chapter nine, verse eight. By Yom Hashem al Moshe be El Aharon. God says to Moses and to Aaron, Kachulachem melo chafnechem piach kifshan. I want you to take a handful of of ashes from the furnace. And Moses has to throw it up in the air before Paro's eyes. It will come back down again as a dust that will settle over the whole land of Egypt. It, when it falls back down, it will land up on man and beast in the whole land of Egypt and it will cause a rash that breaks out in boils. So basically they were taking like hot ashes that came out of the oven and when it got thrown up and it came back down, it settled both on man and on beast and it caused boils filled with pus. Now you can ask the question because we just spoke about pestilence and we said all the livestock were killed. So what animals were there? Well, some animals were brought in to their houses of the Egyptians during the, 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 this pestilence, so it didn't, they didn't get killed. And also the domesticated animals um, didn't weren't harmed, the ones that were found inside. So now the boils are going after them, the rest, the 10% that was left, okay, um, and um, it's causing boils absolutely everywhere. So the Yichu et Piach HaKivshan, so they took the furnace ash, the Yanduli Fnei Paro, they stood before Paro, the Yizrok Otto Moshe, HaShemayim Moshe threw it up heavenward, by here Shechim, Ababuot, Porech, Badam, Obabhema, and it came down, it caused a rash, and it caused, it turned into boils. Now there were three main miracles that happened here. Firstly, the Torah states that Moshe and Aaron were each to take as much ash as they could hold in both hands when cupped together. But Moshe alone would throw it. So that would mean that in each hand, Moshe would have to hold double as much ash as each one had previously held in their two hands separately. Some say that the miracle is even greater because Moshe was able to hold all that ash in just one hand. Secondly, the ash spread all over Egypt. Now, and, and this entire small amount of ash coated every man and every beast that was left in the entire land. Thirdly, I'm sure that you all know that if you take some dust from, say, the braai, okay, or leftover furnace, 
and you throw it upwards, it's very light. It can't be thrown very far. But when washing through the spine ash up into the air, he was able to throw it so far that it went out of sight. And the Midrash says it actually escaped the atmosphere. It picked up radioactivity from space, and that's what caused the blisters and the boil. So it kind of was almost like a nuclear bomb. Um, and it, and Egypt was a huge, a huge land, right? The ash spread throughout all its borders. Even the Egyptian colonies were affected by this plague. What type of plague was it? Well, shame. I'm really sorry for these poor Egyptians. They were like blood blisters and pus pimples. Um, that, that, that attacked the internal mucous membranes. And on the outside of the skin, it caused a dry rash. Right. What's the midda, connected midda? What is the divine judgment in this? Is that the Egyptians had forced the Israelites to bath them. So now the Egyptians were afflicted with rashes that didn't allow them to bath at all. Okay. So now again, as you can see, Progressively, the Jews are being freed more and more and more. Okay, they don't have to look up the animals. They don't have to, 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 to do, to sweep the floors. Now they don't have to bath the Egyptians. Okay. Also, this was a punishment on a much deeper level, um, for, for the Egyptians for issuing propaganda representing that the Jews were disgusting and depraved. So what happened now with the boils? was that the Egyptians became even more repulsive than their representation of what they're saying the Jews were. Okay? Also, another reason why they were, um, they got boils was that they would, they tried as much as possible, as we spoke about earlier, to keep the husbands and wives apart, the Jewish husbands and wives apart, so they could population control. They were now so stricken with this plague, all forms of intimacy were virtually impossible. The rashes also gave rise to leprosy, gangrene set in, it caused their flesh to decay and stink, and until this time, also one of the other punishments the Jews had was that they could not use their bathhouses because they would, and I'm putting in inverted commas, contaminate the water. And after this plague, that restriction was lifted. The rash, the, 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 the occultists, the magicians could not stand before Moshe because of the rash, since the rash had attacked um, all the magicians in all of the land of Egypt. So we are told in the Midrash that this, this, this rash of boils attacked the Egyptian occultists even before it hit the other Egyptians. They got a white leprous eruption all over their hands and then the rest of their bodies. And even after other Egyptians recovered after the seven days, they, their rash remained. And that's why it says they could not, they, they, they could not stand before Moshe. They were ashamed to. And many um, commentators say that their skin disease was so severe that they died within a few days after, after the plague. So over here in the plague of Shechem, you could see that the magicians were specifically targeted. Why? Because it was them who had originally counseled Paro to drown the male Hebrew infants into the Nile. They had obviously seen the Redeemer of Israel, as you know, about to be born. They wanted to kill him before they gained power. So they told Moshe, I mean, they told Paro to kill all the Jewish uh, boys. They also told um, 
Paro, remember when Moshe took off uh, Paro's crown when he was a little child, they told him to also kill them. So they had done everything in their power to kill Moshe. Now they were completely tormented by the terrible disease, and they were so disfigured that they themselves were ashamed to be seen in front of Moshe. Right, so you can go and see over here also one interesting thing, that the word Chartumim, which means the magicians, is spelt without a Yud, before the Mem, the last Mem, there's a Yud missing, and you could go and read it as Chartumam. Chartumam means their hieroglyphists, and really what this means is that the Egyptians believed in a source of their occult power, this God, and this God couldn't stand before Moshe. So from the time of this plague, the unclean spirits that gave the Egyptian magicians power became completely impotent. They could no, they didn't have the audacity or the ability to stand up. The other person who really, 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 really suffered was Paro. But what did he do? But now God hardens Paro's heart. He didn't listen just as God had said. So we're told in the Midrash, the first five plagues, uh, it says that Paro hardened his heart. He had free will. After this now, God hardened Paro's heart because God will take you in the place that you want to go. This is 101.9. Hi, FM. Hi, FM. 101.9 megahertz of life. Let's quickly, before we finish up, then talk about the psycho-spiritual part. Um, in Kabbalah, fire represents or embodies the emotion of rejection. Again, you can skin it one of two ways. What can do, what, why is it rejection? Because like fire, an act or a word can of rejection can scorch or demolish the one who's being rejected or one can use rejection to refuse a destructive urge to sever an un unhealthy relationship, to say no to a spoiled child or no to an unethical business officer, uh, offer, and that is healthy fire. It is a fire that destroys the negative in order to build the positive. So we have to practice rejection, but what do we reject in life? Do we reject those things that are immoral, that are wrong? And we stand up for justice? Or do we use the fire of rejection to destroy, kill, and remove oneself from the people and the events in one's environment? That's what the Egyptians did. And now they were being cleansed of that. So here's another little tidbit. Food for thought in the month of Elul. How do you practice rejection? Do you reject the bad in your life and do the good? Or do you reject sometimes the good and embrace the bad because it selfishly, egotistically serves your animal soul better? I'm going to leave you with that question and wish you all a Chodesh Tov, a Ketibah V'chatimatova, and um, hope that this month of Elo provides food for thought and that each and every one of us should be honest enough to look inside of ourselves and see where are we going. Are we going to be paro, hardened by hardening a heart and using cognitive dissonance? Or are we going to practice chuva, 
which really is returning back to our source, which is God Almighty. Have a wonderful day ahead. This is 101.9 High FM.